to talk about just asking any listeners if they had any ideas of what we should include in these beautiful tipping pitches episodes alex and joel sherman our man from the new york post he answered the call he's up to the task he gave us a cold take to read to bring back that beautiful segment that we did in the past the just the roasting of bad takes before we get to that we have some ump shows to talk about <laughs> a couple really a couple really good ones can you take us through what happened this past week with umpires just inserting themselves into the game in really weird ways not even like a usual ump show where like the strike zone is crazy or anything like that just some really indefensible moves from umpires yeah so the first is actually kind of connects to something that we talked about on last week's episode where todd fraser duped an umpire into thinking that he had caught a foul ball when he did not. Uh, some of you may remember that. And this week, Todd Frazier hit a walk-off home run. And the home plate umpire, Tom Hallian, happened to be um, a part of the crew that was involved in Todd Frazier's duping last week. Tom Hallian, and the so God. As Todd F- puts a respect on his motherfucking name. Yes. Um, He's the umpire who, <laughs> if you don't know, if you didn't listen to like 10 episodes ago, he was the one who was involved with Terry Collins, right? Yeah, I believe so. He was the one. He was the ass in the jackpot. What was? Wait, was he really? Wasn't he? Yeah, I guess he was. <laughs> Alex wow. is finding this out this in is, real time. We got. <laughs> we gotta. We gotta have him on, man. He, I'm sure he has stories to tell. <laughs> His story has been told, and he did not want it to be out there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, this week Todd Frazier hits the walk-off home run. Tom Hallian's a home plate umpire. As Fraser rounds third and heads towards home, Hallian positions himself literally on top of home plate so that when <laughs> Fraser reaches home, now he's like surrounded by Mets players who are waiting to mob Fraser. And, uh, and Fraser has to literally come nose to nose with him to step on the plate. At which point, once he steps on the plate, Hallian immediately walks away. What a bizarre thing to do. This was. Can you explain this to me? Because this is like one of the stranger things I've ever seen an umpire do. And the MLB, in fact, said that they were going to <laughs> investigate what the hell happened here. Um, uh, they're not going to find anything unless they can get into Hallian's brain and see where the code went wrong. Like, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Also, you said stranger things. So Netflix cut that check. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I showed this to my coworker, home, the homeboy Craig who is my co-intern and who I will never be able to go through life without being identified with because we started working and started interning at the same time. Everyone just thinks of us as a package deal. Our nickname around the ringer is the Winklepod twins. So we apparently share a brain now. <laughs> so I showed it to him at work because you sent it to me and you were like, what the fuck is going on? Or you like tweeted it from tipping pitches. So I saw it and I showed it to him and he was like, 
literally like the only explanation I could possibly think of is that he just totally spaced. He forgot where he was. He blacked out. He came back. And he was in the <laughs> middle of a walk-off home run celebration. And I'm like, that cannot have happened because he's staring right down the third base line as Todd Frazier is running towards him. And there's a mob yeah. of Mets players around him. My question is, why didn't the Mets players say anything? Why weren't they like, dude, get off the plate? They're all yeah. just like celebrating as if he's not there. It, it, it was like a glitch in 2K. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I if I had to make an educated guess, and like you know, like you said, we have no way of getting inside his head on this. My guess is that he probably wanted to send some sort of message to Fraser about what he did last week. Like that's the only the only thing that I can think of because he was a part of that crew. He was not the umpire that Fraser duped, but uh, he was, um, I, you know, I guess probably the crew chief for that. And so he probably wanted to send a message to Fraser in like the weirdest way possible. Like instead of pulling him aside during the game or after the game or something like that, he like had to go toe to toe with him while Fraser was celebrating a walk off home run. Uh, bizarre thing to do. I mean, a lot of people were like, oh my God, Hallian, this, what an awful thing to do. Like, I can't believe he would do something <laughs> like that. And I'm like, all right, I guess it didn't really <laughs> impact anything. <laughs> like, I don't know, but it's certainly a strange way to send a message. I say save your energy to those people. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's not doing that much. Like, save it for umpires who eject people for dumb reasons or who just like change their strike zone in the fourth inning for no reason. If he was trying to send a message, he failed. <laughs> Because <laughs> Fraser just like continued to celebrate with his team. Like it didn't disrupt the celebration yeah. or anything like that. No, Fraser Fraser did nothing. He didn't linger. He like stepped on the plate between Hallian's feet <laughs> and then Hallian left and Fraser just celebrated. And that was the end of it. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I would have never even heard about this if it weren't for you. Like they, no one asked. I don't think anyone really asked him about it. Like I need an oral history of this moment. Yeah, we really do. That's all I need. I need someone to write it. I guess I'll have to wait like 10 years because oral histories don't happen like a week after the event. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If Mets fans have anger that they do want to direct at an umpire, perhaps umpire Laz Diaz might be a more suitable target who just took over the Nationals Braves game the other day because Bryce Harper was unhappy about a strike call. So like, he expressed some displeasure about a call during his at bat in the top half of the inning. And he was like, and, and Diaz like kind of made a fuss about it and whatever. And then when the nationals took the field, Diaz like wouldn't stop yelling at Harper, like came out from behind the plate and was motioning to him while Harper was like in center field, like the, the Braves batters up to bat and everything. And he's yelling at Harper. And then he turns his rage onto, uh, onto Davey Martinez, the nationals manager and is like, Harper needs, you know, tell this guy to like, cut it out. Blah, 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 blah. Harper's standing in center field doing nothing. And Diaz has stopped the game because he has been so hurt by, uh, by Harper's reaction to this. This is many, many times weirder than whatever the hell Tom Hallian was doing. <laughs> is it? I feel like they're both pretty weird. Either, okay, there's there's one of two situations here. Either Bryce Harper 
has a sixth sense for when the camera is on him and he's just like sticking his tongue out and making funny faces at Laz Diaz or he's actually yeah. literally doing nothing <laughs> because in the video that I saw circulating it's it's like on Laz Diaz on home plate and then it'll cut back to Harper and he's just like standing there just doing I mean absolutely nothing he's like just leaning yeah. towards one end hands on his hips and then it'll cut back to Laz Diaz and he's like staring at him like he's about to fucking like he's Gennady Golovkin and Canelo Alvarez and the the stare off before the fight. <laughs> and I'm like, what is going on, dude? It's like it takes Ump Show to a new level. And if I'm being honest, like you've done this on the you've done this on the pod before, so I'm gonna do it right now. Hate to co-opt the language of the alt-right, but umpires are such snowflakes. <laughs> <laughs> like he argued uh, a straight yeah. call in the inning before, and you feel the need to stare out into center field. Laz Diaz clearly doesn't have great vision because he doesn't know the difference between a ball and a strike. So he probably can't even see Bryce Harper all the way out there. He's just like assuming that Harper is giving him attitude. And he's like, yeah, we need to just get rid of all the umpires and start over. Yeah, seriously. Diaz was yelling to him in center field. I know you can hear me. And then (laughs) stared him and and then stared Harper down as he jogged back to the dugout. Like, you, this is the ultimate ump show. This is the ump show of all ump shows. This is like those people, those like first responders to Donald Trump's tweets being like, I know you see this at POTUS and like tweeting the memes at him. <laughs> and just, <laughs> I guess in this situation, I made Bryce Harper Donald Trump, which like, let's be real. Um, <laughs> Damn, don't slander my man like that. No, I love Bryce. Come to the Mets. Bryce, come on to the pitches. <laughs> I don't know, man. Are we ever going to get an end to this? No. I mean, the thing is, like, I think that Harper is an easy target for umpires and players and and opposing teams, too. I mean, he is because he's kind of like the quote-unquote bad boy, right? Like, he is he's visible about his emotions. I mean, this is not the first time that we've seen someone yelling at Harper on the field, right? I mean, his yeah. own teammates have yelled at him uh, because he's, you know, dogging uh, like pop-ups or something like that. So I think that part of it is like just a reputation that that Harper has unfairly, but I don't know. The answer is no, we're never going to get an end of this. We're going to get uh, Harper vitriol videos for the next decade. You just inadvertently linked Laz Diaz and Jonathan Papelbon and that's some fucking three-dimensional chess right there you're not getting that on any other podcast and I love it I love it is Bryce Harper uh, actually a bad boy he's not a bad boy like I know I know what you mean like he no. has this perception of being like flashy and like he sort of like skirts the unwritten rules and like kind of does what he wants and he like portrays himself as like this edgy kind of like guy and he's just like really a normal dude he's like the definition of a a normal dude who like grew up well off traveling and playing baseball you know like if mike trout is like the most normal baseball player dude who just like just wanted to play baseball bryce harper is like one step up from that and he's like a very normal dude who like saw what baseball could do for him in terms of celebrity He's not like yeah. some crazy supervillain. He's not like Lenny Dykstra or anything like that. I don't get why everybody. No, not. I don't get why everybody just like. It doesn't make sense that he's like the most divisive figure for other players, for fans of other teams other than the Nats, 
for umpires, for other coaches, for his for his own teammates. Like, if anything, and I can't believe I'm saying this, Nationals fans are the most reasonable fan base. They're the most reasonable group of people in the world when it comes to Bryce Harper. They're the only ones who see him for what he is. He's like a really good baseball player who's just like kind of fun to watch. It's probably not as good as like ESPN made him seem and is just like a great guy to root for because he tries really fucking hard yeah. most of the time, you know? <laughs> yeah. And and that's just it. I think that a lot of people, for whatever reason, are really frustrated at like the hype around him and the fact that he has like quote unquote not lived up to it, even though he posted a historic season just a few years ago and is still a very, very good baseball player. But people are like, okay, like Harper, like, you know, hyped since he was 16 years old. And now he's like, he's kind of got a little bit of an attitude to him. And he's like, he's like got this kind of smirk on his face all the time. Like he always seems like he's kind of probably hiding something like you were saying, like he probably did know when the camera was on him and was like sticking out his tongue and like wagging his hands at the air at Laz Diaz. Um, And so I think that he just rubs people the wrong way unfairly. Like he really does not deserve all the hate that comes his way, but nah, dude, he rubs someone's got to take it. He rubs me the right way. I'm in, I'm in. I like it. I want to see chaos. Bobby. I want to see the world burn. I want to see Bryce Harper make every single person on earth mad. I think it's so funny. I like that he just kind of leans into it. Like, you know, he kind of like knows. I think it's so funny. Like, if you, Alex Baisley, could make every single other person in the journalism world mad just off stories that you wrote, wouldn't you just continue to write those stories? Yeah, I guess so. I think it would be so funny that he's like the dead spin of baseball. Yeah. <laughs> or uh or perhaps you could say that he's like the Joel Sherman of baseball. <laughs> Look at that real transition. Tim, <laughs> we're coming along as podcasters, though we did forget to introduce ourselves. So I guess now that we've spent twenty minutes uh talking about umpires, talking about the cultural relevance of Bryce Harper. <laughs> uh I'm Bobby Wagner. And I'm Alex Baisley. And this is tipping pitches. Alex, give me the Joel Sherman hot take. <laughs> this is a this is a good one, and uh, I want to. We should shout out Austin Zimmerman, who uh, shout out producer Austin Zimmerman, producer slash uh, super fan slash former guest Austin Zimmerman slash minor um, league scout Austin Zimmerman. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, he sent us this piece for us to read. He heard that plea. And uh, and yeah, so we have a another dramatic bad take reading for you all, courtesy of the one and only New York Post, which has really given us the best ones I think over the last uh, year or so. God bless the New York Post. So, courtesy of Joel Sherman, statistical revolution is killing the next generation of MLB fans. It's just killing a man right off the. It's killing, it's killing him right away. Right off the bat, man. He's just like, you know, th- I mean, this is another like stats based uh take which like we you know we can never really get enough of these but like this wasn't even we've seen much more inspired ones but that said let's dive into uh to what how joel sherman thinks that advanced stats are killing baseball or whatever so he says the smart folks are right but it is wronging baseball (sighs) look at that turn of phrase right off the bat bars it's like i mean that draws that draws me in bars alex 
He's the ghostwriter for Jerk. <laughs> they are right that wins are a bad gauge of what kind of season a pitcher had, as Jacob deGrom is exemplifying this year. Okay, okay, appreciate it. They are right that batting average reveals far less about a hitter's skill than 10 other metrics and that RBIs and runs scored are so highly dependent on the team around you as to not be insightful into an individual as once believed. You kind of lost me there in the second half of the sentence, but we'll just keep going. It's all about clarity, Joel. (laughs) I agree with it all. Yet I believe part of the decline in passion for the major leagues is mixed into how we view these numbers. For we keep telling one generation of fans they are dumb for caring about 20 wins or 300 batting averages or 100 RBIs, and the next generation of fans doesn't care about them. But what has, what has risen in its place to keep interest in players and teams in seasons? Uh, okay, you have my attention. Sure. It used to be that even if your team was out of it, you could still be engaged daily by a favorite player pursuing 20 wins or 100 runs or 100 RBIs. Baseball is novelistic. You turn the pages daily, and the rewards are generally at the end of the long and challenging commitment. That's kind of a fire line. I'm going to give him that. I'm going to throw him a bone here. (laughs) I kind of like that line. I'm into that as a concept. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's some nice prose. Uh, he keeps going on this like hundred RBI tangent. I think he's just really mad that like someone once told him that like RBIs don't matter, and now he's just harping on this. Um, and then, but then later uh, down further in the article, he goes, "But as these numbers have been poo-pooed again, if I ran a team, I would poo-poo them too." So he points out he hates all these stats too. <laughs> we have lost a thread that connected eras. What are fans living and dying with individually these days? Is anyone tracking if their favorite has exceed has exceed that's a typo grammatical error has exceeded five wins above replacement or if their most beloved pitcher had an xFIP that dropped below three? I just want to say my most beloved pitcher does have an xFIP below three. Yeah, what's up? Anyway, <laughs> also uh, another thing, I mean, a visual this- thing. Did you know that poo pooed was spelled with an H, like Winnie the Pooh? Uh, nope. <laughs> didn't <laughs> don't think i've ever seen that written out in an article and this is and this is just like the crux of his whole argument he goes on to be like we used to care about 30 home runs uh we used to care about 100 rbis we used to care about wins and now no one cares about it anymore and and also the people who do care about it just get yelled at that it doesn't matter and they're stupid and dumb this is the whole this is like the whole column actually I wanted That's to it. say, though, it's actually not the whole column, though, because we had a Bob Nightingale piece that was like very similar. But then Sherman's piece like sort of goes down this weird tangent with like the steroid era. Like there's this part in the middle yeah. where he's like uh, he's like saying that he believes statistics have been the backbone of this sport. Uh, and between the steroid era and the metric generation, we've weakened that backbone, even as more revealing stats have been introduced. So on one hand. He's making the argument that like we don't get to count stats and home runs anymore. We can only count like WRC plus and XFIP and OPS, but like all these different things. And then on the other hand, he's like, but even when we do get to count, which we don't get to do, we can't do that anymore. But when we do get to count, which we're not allowed to do anymore, just want to say that we're not allowed to count anymore. Otherwise, we get yelled at. But when we do count in the cases that we do count, just saying when that does happen then we get yelled at about steroids and i'm like what what do you make it you're completely undermining your entire argument about steroids by saying we're not allowed to count home runs anymore 
<laughs> but then you're saying when we do count home runs, it's marred by the fact that the guy might be taking steroids. I'm like, is this a discourse of a baseball conversation that I'm just like completely missing? Like I know that I know from like 2005 to like 2012, I would say during my lifetime of baseball fandom, that was when I was like, all right, yeah, everyone's on steroids. Like, I don't care who you are. I'm not going to believe that you're not on steroids, like guilty until proven innocent, because that's how bad the league had gotten with steroids. But now is anyone like Mike Trout is on anabolics? Like, I don't really think that's a thing. (laughs) And is anyone like, oh, Mike Trout has 41 home runs this year. I don't know why I just counted how many home runs Mike Trout has. Why would I ever do that? Why don't I just list off his work? Like, no, if Mike Trout hits 40 home runs, we just spent you and I to very statistically inclined people just spent 40 minutes last week talking about the 30 30 club which is like the easiest thing that you could possibly count yeah i just he loses he loses me at halfway through the article just like talking about all that stuff but then i'm with him in the sense that like baseball is a very statistically driven sport i'm just i know i've said this like a million times and i'm gonna keep saying it until my face is blue but like you have a choice as to what you follow like when you're watching a baseball game they're not like you know, the play-by-play guy is not ignoring what's happening on the field and reading off a list of the fan graphs leaderboards. <laughs> like, you could very easily just like echo chamber yourself into hearing what you want to hear, and that would be fine because there's no civic engagement required to being a baseball fan. You can just read and listen to what you want to read and listen to. Yeah, like, yeah, he he has a line in here where he says. This is fans' leisure time. They want 20 wins, 30 home runs, uh, 300 averages, or career totals of 300 wins, 500 home runs, whatever. Easily calculable and understandable, simple to follow over long seasons and lengthy careers. And I get that. I understand. Like, I can't calculate war off the top of my head, but I know exactly what batting average refers to. Like, I know that it's, you know, the number of hits out, that you got out of the number of uh, at bats that you had. And that's fine. And that's good. And if that's the stat that you want to use to evaluate a player, like I'm not going to come and smack the scorebook out of your hand or anything like that. Like no one is, no one is really. (laughs) I'm on a mission. I hope, I I hope you do. And, and so like, I, I understand that argument that the, the tangible things, the things that you can see on the field are what's easiest to grasp onto. And I also get the backlash to like the kind of smarmy, like statistically minded people like Brian Kenny or something like that, um, who are like, wins don't matter at all. We should take them away. You are a goddamn idiot if you still believe in them. And it's like, no, these are, you can like do your own analysis over here and you can have another fan who's like, cool, uh, Max Scherzer has 18 wins. So he's a good pitcher. Like that's, like these, you, the the two streams don't have to cross. Like you do not have to hate each other. Um, yeah. And and I also disagree that he's like, you know, we're taking away stats and there's nothing to take its place. It's like that's really not true. Like you were saying, you can choose to pay attention to what you want. And if the if the old stats are boring you, it's pretty easy to go and familiarize yourself with um, newer like sabermetric stats. This is making a problem out of something that I don't think is really there. 
Yeah, well, that's like what that's what baseball fans do because, like, the baseball community at large has this weird thing where to be a baseball fan, you have to be like one strain of thing. And this is like sort of my biggest gripe with the whole like baseball is on its way out line of thinking, you know, is that to me, like, baseball, it's the sport that you can make what you want it to be the easiest. By that, I mean, if you want to watch a baseball game and you want to have your laptop open and be on Twitter the whole time, you can do that and you can still see most of the game. If you want to go to the game with your friends and just have a couple beers and leave in the seventh inning, you can do that. If you want to care about pitching, you can watch when your team is pitching and you can you know, do homework while your team is hitting. If you want to do the opposite, you can do the opposite. Like, there are so many ways for you to love baseball. There are so many ways for like the greater you, the world at large, to love baseball. And then there are all these dudes writing columns for newspapers that are dying, being like, actually, you need to love baseball in the way that you think about 300 hitters and you think about the triple crown and you think about 20 game winners. And if you don't love baseball in this way, and if you don't know that Nolan Ryan threw 180 pitches in 1984 in a game that he won two to one, then fuck off. Like, it's just like, we don't need to make baseball this one thing. And if we finally let that go as a larger community, we could like change baseball and we could change the context and the framework of baseball where like, you can like it kind of, you can sort of be into it. You could be really into it. You could not like it, but enjoy going into the games. And all of this would be a much more sustainable way of thinking about bringing fans in for the future, as opposed to now where we have like, you're either with the statistical community or you're not. And like, these are competing factions. Like it's just a dumb way of looking at it. And I think largely baseball, like MLB's PR, this current regime with Rob Manfred has done a bad job of sort of combating that head to head because like in the short term, you can see how it's like a compelling, like Joel Sherman says, novelistic way of thinking about it. Here are these two competing factions. Let's see which one wins out. But like, if we think about it on a grander context, if we think about other sports leagues, if we think about the NBA, no one in the NBA is like, because you don't, I mean, sure. Like within writing communities, within like blogs versus newspapers, within podcast versus radio or whatever there'll be like a divide between if you don't like threes then you're dumb if you shoot long twos then you're a bad player sure that's fine but like the league is like check out these dunks you know check out this sick through the legs pass that Steph Curry threw and baseball is just like you know not really doing that as well it's not really like you can like xyz you can like the pregame routine if you want you know yeah, and I guess what what really frustrates me is that like Sherman openly acknowledges that a lot of the stats that he references and that he grew up with maybe ultimately don't necessarily have like a bearing on a player's skill, right? So he knows this. He understands that some of these older stats are outdated. And yet he still uses his platform to complain that we're not replacing it with anything as opposed to using his platform as a way to like help bridge the divide. Like you can use your column and be like, let's uh, let's talk about some of the newer ways of 
looking at baseball and and find where we can find some like common ground to understand things. Over at the Athletic, um, I I want to say it was like maybe the Indians beat writer. They they had just brought a beat writer on like a few months ago, and one of said writer's first columns was, "I am just going to spend this entire uh, page." explaining to you some of the newer sabermetric concepts just so that you have a grasp on them. And we're not going to force them down your throat. You don't have to read the article. These are things I might use down the road. And if you're a reader, I want you to just kind of familiarize yourself with this. And like, if you're a sports writer, you do have some sort of responsibility to like not be stuck in the past, right? Like it would worry me if there were sport, if there were sports writers out there, which I'm sure there are, who uh, were like, no, 20 games is the hallmark of a Cy Young Award winner. Like that's <laughs> that's just not true anymore. You're Rick stuck Porcello in the past, dog. and yeah, um, I mean, our our good friend Harold Reynolds gave us a uh, the perfect example of that on MLB Network the other day, yeah. talking about how he didn't think that Jacob Degrom was worthy of a Cy Young Award. What has happened is we've funneled the game into an individual game. We basically said, now with the MVP, the, the thing that's bogged down the MVP, it doesn't matter if your team's in the playoffs. Well, that doesn't matter. It, it, so what if you're in contention or not? You got the best numbers. That was never, ever a, a qualifier for the MVP. And now, because you win the ERA title, that was never the qualifier that you win the Cy Young. Those things have changed the narrative of the game. And that is where we're at today. That's why strikeouts don't matter and hit my homers. So who would you give the Cy Young? Real quick before we go to Rick. Who would you give the Cy Young? It's going to Jacob DeGrom. No, who would you give it to? I'd give it to Scherzer. Okay. And you? Jacob. Okay. DeGrom. That's it. With all due respect to my boy, Mike Scherzer. Like, he talks on one side where he's like, uh, I don't know why Mike Trout is winning MVPs when his team's not in the playoffs. And then... He like chooses Max Scherzer at the very end of that clip, like for his Cy Young. And I'm like, I just don't understand these people on TV and writing columns, like being beholden to this very obviously flawed logic that like writers used to have in like 1968, you know? I just, yeah, it's disappointing. It's disappointing. Ultimately, it, it doesn't like it doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't matter if Jacob wins the Cy Young or not. You're catching me in a in a reasonable moment. If Jacob doesn't win the Cy Young, I will <laughs> throw things out of a hundred story building and cause a lot of damage yeah. and be angry. But yeah, it doesn't change the fact that it was joyous to watch him. And I think like you and I are very guilty of this, but like we don't need to get all up in arms every time someone has a terrible take because like we can, we should just continue to enjoy baseball in the way that we enjoy it. But like, I don't know, we have a podcast so we can rip Harold Reynolds when we want to. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's important to point out that like Joel Sherman is complicit in this. Like you write for one of the biggest newspapers in America and you're using your space to complain about new stats and and old stats at the same time, you're basically saying both are bad and not offering a solution. So what do you want, Joel? Just tell us what you want. Tell us what you want, Joel. Joel, come on the pod. Come on the pod, Joel. Yeah, we should do that. <laughs> um, all right. Let's uh let's stop streaming to the void. When we come back, we have a bit of a uplifting story from a Mets announcer. So we're gonna talk about that. Uh, I- 
this pod i was scrolling twitter and i came across an athletic article and then i had you send the athletic article to me in an email because i'm a cheap bastard uh it's titled i hope it's a waterfall mets announcer josh lewin wants to open the floodgates on mental health awareness um and it's just a quick uh write-up by tim Britton about mets radio and tv personality uh josh lewin who is like trying to open up discourse for mental health in sports and with broadcasters and and everyone kind of top down. He's, uh, it says he, from the article, Lewin is hoping he can help foster the same kind of message to those coping with anxiety and depression in all their forms. Um, Compelled in part by the suicides of Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade this summer, Lewin launched a website, oktogether.com, that has collected more than 80 stories from athletes, entertainers, and TV and radio personalities detailing their bouts with anxiety. Uh, the stories are culled from sources all around the internet, with Lewin calling himself happily astonished at the rate of proliferation in recent years. So it's a nice little write-up about like trying to destigmatize conversations about mental health and sports. Um, and I wanted to bring it up with you because we've talked about these types of things in the past, and uh, it's... I think a positive thing to talk about. We usually talk about these things in negative ways. Like I think back to uh, Ken Giles and the Astros and the conversation we had when that all went down in Yankee stadium. Um, So you read the article as well, since you were the one that needed to share it with me. So I appreciate having (laughs) joint access to your athletic subscription. (laughs) Um, Do you kind of have a sense of, optimism or pessimism about where this conversation about mental health that's kind of starting to take off in the sports world is headed towards because the cynic in me is like i hope this doesn't stay at that at the like surface level of mental health discourse do you kind of have you felt that like this proliferation that he's talking about here of mental health discourse has been largely positive or are you wanting for more i mean i think that you can always want for more, but it's certainly like a step in the right direction. I think like he has a quote in here um, where he's like, you know, I'm not saying uh, that having anxiety or depression is cool, but I want to make sure people know it's not uncool. And certainly one way of doing that is breaking down that wall with like entertainers and celebrities and saying, look, like these are things that people who are at the top of the world deal with too. People who we see as being these um, perfect figures with nothing wrong with them. They have perfect lives. They make, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and they have, you know, beautiful significant others and they have the best job in the world. And, uh, you know, they have everything you could possibly ask for in life. Um, But like they, this is, these are things that they deal with the same as the rest of us, right? Um, And so, while it certainly could kind of just stall here and generate a few feel good stories, I think that like 
there's nothing that says that like this is bad. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I think if anything, the, the my hope is that yeah, it, it does turn into a waterfall, and this kind of the floodgates open, and you start to hear more stories um, coming out because. I think especially around sports, it's particularly hard. Um, and it, it it ties into stuff we've talked about before about how we expect athletes to be emotionless and robots. And they, uh, you know, like the Ken Giles thing that you mentioned, like we expect them to, to be able to um, deal with hardship and triumph better than the rest of us. And that's not a fair pressure to put on anyone because everyone is human and we all deal with things in really similar ways. And just because you're getting paid a lot of money to play baseball doesn't mean that like you might be affected by something. Or just because you're getting paid money to go on MLB TV and talk about baseball doesn't mean you might not get anxiety when the red recording light clicks on. So I think that like if anything, it's a positive first step. Yeah. So my fear with this is kind of twofold. Um, the first one, you mentioned it a little bit, but like, you know, they have the hundred million dollar contracts. People look up to them. They have all of all of the material good that you could want in this world. And I'm sort of worried that like, and my two fears kind of tie into each other. I'm sort of worried that like, the athletic discourse about at least with the athletes, like I think, without trying to like obscure Josh Lewin's point of view in this, um, at least with athletes, I worry a little bit that like people will sort of use this use athletes like overcoming these like mental health issues as like a way to prove that like anyone can do it. Like this is my idol. Anyone can just overcome this. Um, And I want athletes who are going to be like, I have all the support and the structure in the world to be able to overcome um, depression and anxiety and things like that. And I want them to like actually care about communities that don't have that support and structure you know like mental we're gonna write stories about kevin love and demar Derozan and even josh lewin um but we're probably not gonna write stories about depressed and anxious kids playing basketball in like compton or like north philly or new york city um and we're not gonna write about like the different societal factors probably uh or at least we're not doing it right now. And I hope that we will. And I hope that like these athletes who are sort of starting this conversation are willing to like push it past just like, we need to get guys in the NBA more therapy. Like we need to get everyone more therapy. We need to get all athletes more therapy. Uh, We need to get just like Americans need to not think of a therapist as like the person that lays you down on a couch and asks you about your childhood and like, draws conclusions from that and then like analyzes you like Sigmund Freud. Like we need to sort of kill that stereotype. And the other fear that I had, like while reading the DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love piece by Jackie McMullen, which I think is great. I think like a place like ESPN writing about this sort of like means that everywhere will start writing about this. And that's great. But I'm reading that and I'm seeing like, I'm seeing like different athletes talking about their process and while I have a lot of respect for like the different things that people do to get past their depression, to pass their anxiety, um, their methods of overcoming these things. I worry that like oftentimes those methods will be simplified when reported on. Like, you know, for example, NBA player X is like, I was depressed for like three months when I got to the NBA. And then I realized I needed to just like 
get out there and conquer the world and like engage with like my city and get some sunlight and walk around and go to the park and go out with friends and things like that. And while that does work for some people and while that might work for like an NBA player who is new to a city, new to a team, like that doesn't mean that like this whole, I don't, I don't know how to like name it, but like this whole culture of like, just try like, you know, watching a comedy, like check out like Netflix comedies, feel good love stories, check out, like go read this book that made me really happy when I was like 22. I just like worry that we're, I'm afraid that like sports is going to kind of oversimplify this conversation. And I think it's really dangerous to do that Um, because like sports athletes are taught to generalize. And I think it's dangerous when you generalize mental health because it's so specific. And I think that specificity is like, that needs to be the bedrock of this conversation. And so when I read articles like this, I'm I'm really happy that like we're advancing the conversation about mental health. And I, I like that Josh Lewin talks specifically about like that red light comes on and his feeling of anxiety. It reminds me of actually a conversation, an interview with Bill Hader, the guy from SNL. Um, it reminds me of a conversation that he had with Bill Simmons on Bill's now defunct any given Wednesday HBO show. But he was talking about like, during his time on SNL, he would have like full on panic attacks during skits. I'm like, that's the specificity we need, you know, like we need to, we need to hear that. We need to, we need people to understand that when they're feeling this sort of anxiety, like in whatever situation that they're in, it's important to know that that's a normal feeling. And I appreciate that. Like in this piece, Josh Lewin was like, when that red light takes on or like, I look back at old videos and I look really nervous um, and that's fine because I've come a long way since then. Like, I'm I'm afraid that like athletes are going to sort of be like, yeah, we all go through stuff and then we all get over it. And that's like not really doing much for the conversation. Yeah. I, I mean, I see what you're saying with that. Um, and I hope that, okay. I think of like, yeah, I think of two kind of two different storylines um, to in baseball specifically. Um, like about a month or so ago, there was an article that came out about Justin Verlander uh, in Bleacher Report. It was really good. Everyone should go and read it. We can link to it. Um, and it was about the, the his battles with depression, especially back in 2014 when he was having like uh, a rocky year. And he credited uh, his now wife, Kate Upton, for kind of helping him through that. And he says, you know, like, who knows if I'm even here, if it wasn't for her, she was instrumental in me uh, not, uh, not jumping off a bridge. I was depressed and kind of upset at the world and trying to hide my own shit. And and then now he talks about how he kind of feels rejuvenated. And, um, and so that's, I think, kind of while it is commendable that he, that one of the best uh, pitchers in the world came out and talked about this sort of thing. That's the kind of more rosy side of things where it's like, yeah, a few years ago I was down and then I talked to my significant other, which is like not how you should deal with this shit. You should not just dump it on your girlfriend and expect them to just like help you with it. Um, mm-hmm. But, and then he came out the other side and he feels better. And like the other side of things is like the Zach Greinke conversation, which he like very publicly has dealt with a lot of like mental health issues specifically around like social anxiety and stuff 
uh, enough to the point where he stepped away from baseball when he was a prospect with the Royals. And it's interesting because he has not had that like rosy end to everything where he's like, I was bad before and now I feel better. Like he's still really withdrawn and he still kind of receives not always the best. Like people are sometimes kind of divided on Grinky because he's kind of standoffish and he might rub you the wrong way just because he's not like just like the friendly go with the flow baseball player that I think a lot of other players are like. Um, and so that's the less fun side of things because you see him kind of more publicly dealing with these issues and not always getting the best reception for it. Like you don't see across the board support for like Zach Greinke, you don't have to come out here and sign autographs or whatever. Or, you know, we, we had the, the Pat Neshek story long ago, right? About how he refused to sign an autograph for Pat Neshek. And part of it was like, all right, this is fun to roast everyone involved. And part of it's just like, no, like Zach Greinke's allowed to do what he wants to do. And if there's something that makes him uncomfortable, we shouldn't like laugh at him for that. Um, so you're right. I think it is easy to fall into the trap of just being like, well, I was bad and now I'm better. Um, but I, I hope that this is the first kind of uh, domino to fall in this conversation, because this is not something that we would have talked about at all even 10 years ago, maybe. I mean, I know that we've had athletes over the years come out and talk about this, but we're seeing a more and more, more and more of a focus on it. And, and yeah, I hope that we shift the conversation more towards something where it's like, okay, like how can we expand these resources to everyone and not just people who are making millions of dollars a year? Yeah. I, I mean, I hope what I'm saying is, is making sense. Like it really makes sense in my head that like, you know, I was bad and now I'm better is a bad way of going about this. Like, I know we're all striving towards wellness. We're all striving towards mental wellness. We're all striving towards combating depression, dealing with our anxiety. Like, that's true. We should be striving towards that. But like, the conversation about mental health needs to be about the strive, not about the end goal. Because there are a lot of people who are just like going to go through their entire lives and never reach that end goal. And Though, like those are probably the people that need this conversation the most. And so, yeah, the I was bad and now I'm better. I don't want the the conversation to be like, this is my success story. Uh, and now I'm a great pitcher again. Like I'm now I'm still a great pitcher, right? Like, and you should try to be success and you should try to be a great uh, tech consultant or like whatever you do, you know, I, I want it to just be like layered with the empathy of, I went through this process. This is what my process looked like. That's what your process looks like. And that's great that we're talking about it yeah. because that matters. Not not to mention, a, you start to get into sticky territory when you start framing it as like, I was going through something that was bad that I shouldn't have been going through. And then I worked through my problems and now I am better. And now I am solved. And you don't really hear those stories of like, this is something that I am battling through right now. And it's just something that I live with and it's completely normal and it's okay for me to have this. Like you hear the stories. Um, I mean, I know there's like uh, Kevin Love who like talks about kind of the um, the anxiety that he's currently battling, but you- um, Sure, but like, it, uh, sorry to cut you off, but like even in that piece, even in his conversation with it, he was like, I was dealing with this like in January, you know? He's not like, 
I was dealing with this like in today's game. And like, I, I think it's an unrealistic expectation for, uh, for us to like expect athletes, to, like give post game quotes being like, Oh, I, I like felt my heart start to race and like felt anxiety coming on in like the third quarter today. Like that, that's not constructive. I don't think, but like the framework of it and the framework that everyone is talking about it in is like, Oh, great job by Kevin Love talking about like this one episode of anxiety that he had and how he's like gotten over it. Like this, this moment where he like ran back into the locker room and now he's like, he, he must be doing better because he can talk about it. That's sort of like the perspective that I'm seeing people come at this from is like, he must be managing it better now because he can talk about it. I'm like, no, we don't need to manage it better to be able to talk about it. Talking about it is part of learning how to manage it better in my mind as a society like rather than just kind of like squashing it down so we never really deal with it yeah it's like talking about it as something you want to like just rid yourself of almost increases that stigma inadvertently because then you're like oh well this is something that these people very publicly talked about after the fact but like what does that do to help me come out now and confront it like all it is is you hear very famous people talking about like something I like didn't really want to deal with and it like ostracized me, but now I'm on the other side. Like I've seen the light and I've made it through. And it's like, yeah, like what does that what does that do for me other than kind of double that anxiety down and be like, shit, I really shouldn't be dealing with this. Like I really this is something that I very tangibly feel inside me and other people have gotten through. And like, how do I get through that? You know, like if you don't see that light at the end of the tunnel, that can almost feel more deafening than anything else rather than hearing people be like, yeah, this is just something that I live with. And it's not like, it's not a, it's not a disease. It's not a sickness that I beat. I didn't just take medicine and now I'm cured. This is something that like, some days are good and some days are bad. And you just kind of learn to manage that and make it a part of you as opposed to being like, this is something I want to um, expel from my body, this thing that has descended on me. And now I want to like push it away. Yeah. That like expel this, delete this from your life, vanquish this, like this anxiety, vanquish this depression. That's like a vicious cycle a little bit. Right. Cause like people who deal with these things, like, I deal with these things like it's never going to like just go away. Like it was never going to be like one year of your life. And then like the rest of your life is like rosy and sunny. That's an unrealistic expectation for us to have for athletes, for media members, for regular people uh, who are not in the public eye. And so like, I gotta be honest, like I don't have a ton of faith in, in baseball being the vehicle, but I, I am hopeful and 100% willing to be proved wrong in the future. Alex, my favorite baseball player of all time it looks like is going to hang them up after this season david wright gave maybe the most depressing news conference of my sports fandom lifetime 
talking about how he's going to start at third on September 29th, right, is the date for the Mets. Um, yeah. And they didn't officially say that he was going to retire afterwards, but in all likelihood, setting a date specifically telling the fans where your injured third baseman is going to come back and start one game and t- not saying that he's like going to come back for the rest of the season. It's a, it's a pretty big red flag. <laughs> um, yeah. The way he, the way he phrased it was like, like he was asked point blank, like, so David, this is it, right? Like you're not coming back after this. And he was like, like he never specifically used the word retire, but he was like, medically, I don't think it's possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Mets have caught a lot of flack in the last like month or so since David has been playing uh, at I think Double A, um, because they were like he's not able to play at the major league level or something like that, and a lot of fans I think rightfully so were like, well if he's medically cleared to play in the minor leagues and he should be medically cleared to play in the major leagues and like you know whether that's going to make the team worse shouldn't really matter because he's done more than enough to earn a proper send-off and this news conference like it made me feel a little better about the way the situation i don't think it's been messaged very well but like the way the situation has gone david being like i think medically being like i don't think that's possible uh is a stance that we hadn't really heard from him up until this point i hope he's not being like coerced into saying that for for a lack of a better word but you know, you know what I'll say is I bet he was coerced into not saying that for a very long time and told just keep working and that it, so it looks like you can come back and then, you know, we will we'll send you out there for one final game on September 2019 and we'll recoup most of the insurance on you and also we'll sell a shit ton of tickets to this game. So I think that like he was probably told that he was working towards something that was not really going to come to fruition. Yeah. Um, I think he probably I, knew that. Maybe, maybe that's, yeah. Oh, I'm sure he knew that too, but I'm sure he was also told not to say that. Yeah. I mean, he's been nothing but a company man, right? <laughs> Down yeah. to the very last day. There'll be, there'll be a lot of like proper uh, eulogizing of David Wright's baseball career and like everything he did for the Mets and uh, everything he kind of like stuck through and all the bullshit that he had to deal with, with this team and the will ponds. Um, and, and we'll do that in due time, but, you know, felt like we needed to talk about this in real time as it was happening. I know you said you looked up tickets to the game, uh, and they were already like 50 bucks for the nosebleed. And that was like uh, almost a week ago at this point. So yeah, I don't think either of us will be in attendance. I'm not going to fly all (laughs) the way back to New York for this one. I have to say, I will, I'll be watching it on my computer for sure. Um, but it's sad, man. It's sad. I don't know. There's not really like a more intelligent conversation to have about this. Sometimes baseball is just sad. We said the same thing when Prince Fielder retired and, you know, neither of us were Brewers or Rangers fans in our lifetimes. Yeah, it's always it always hurts to see someone's career prematurely ended, especially when it's someone who brought so much joy to the game, even just being like a fundamentally sound baseball player, like who would, who is there day in and day out and who you could count on, like the passing of time, you know, like David Wright was time, except time caught up to him. And now here we are. Yeah. All right, man. I don't want to keep going on this and start crying yet. I'll wait till after he actually hangs him up to do all that. <laughs> we'll do it like a 
five moments with number five or some shit like that. Some <laughs> canned segment where I can get more emotional as it goes on and on. <laughs> did you see Pedroia gave him the number five from the Green Monster? I did. That's pretty cool. They have, the, I think, like either MLB or like Yahoo or whatever, like push notified me about that. And like in parentheses, or maybe this was a tweet that I saw. I don't know. My brain is merging with my phone. In parentheses, uh, it was like they have the same agent, and I'm like, that's just not something that you really needed to add. <laughs> Why? <laughs> like, you don't need to take the cynics view on this. They could just be friends. You could, I could find out that they're yeah. the same agent on their own. Yeah. Although I'm not here for the Dustin Pedroia redemption tour. Like, no. no, thank you. Yeah. Like, still, nothing, nothing that makes him good in my eyes. Yeah. So no for me, dog. I steal a few breaths. I want to say I'm very impressed with us. Let's take the listeners behind the curtain real quick. I was watching the Mets Red Sox game DeGrom versus Sale the entire time we were recording this. And uh, and you were watching like five other games for your, I guess, fantasy team, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you only interjected and yelled, fuck, like three different times. I only had to cut three of those out. It's pretty good on our part. Yeah, there are a couple air yells. Like uh, like silent screams to myself. Things aren't going well <laughs> over here, but you know we're living. It's been a while since we've talked about like actual baseball. I feel like I feel like the last few weeks we've kind of just been like, yeah, playoff races are decided. There's not a lot going on around the league. We're just picking stories from like various publications to read from. Yeah, I am excited now for the next couple weeks because I'm I'm hoping that stretch baseball gives us something to. Uh, to cheer and cry about i'm looking forward to the playoffs because at least by then my sweet lanky son will have locked up the cy young and i won't have to watch the mets anymore (laughs) i can watch good teams not if harold reynolds has anything to say about it (laughs) if you have anything to say about it you the listener if you have takes and you have a particularly hot one a particularly good one if you impress us enough in an email tipping pitches pod at gmail.com or in a dm we might even read it on the show and roast you like we roasted Harold Reynolds. So if that's something that's interesting to you, flood our inbox. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to get a publicly shamed, hit us up. I would do it for my favorite pods. So if we're one of your favorite pods, yeah. let's hear it. Thank you for listening, as always. We will see you all next week. Later, y'all. I want to just point out, by the way, real quick, that you said that Bryce Harper rubs you the right way. Um, I know. <laughs> and that's it's the best. <laughs>